This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. What a voice. Delores O'Reardon and the Cranberries there. Ridiculous thoughts. That was for Starve. It is for After 4. You are on In Your Face on 3CR. With James on my lonesome in the studio, a bit away, but I have three superb guests kicking off with comedian Nikki Spunde about their upcoming The Lazy Show. I've also got non-binary and gender spectrum researcher Zav Sawickle coming into the studio and I'll be talking to Angie Black, the director of The Five Provocations, which has its world premiere on Sunday as part of Melbourne's Queer Film Festival. Lots to look forward to. Stick around with me till five o'clock here on 3CR. In your face. Alrighty. Uh, here's no doubt doing a bit of Adam and the Ants. No doubt, stand and deliver six after four. You're on In Your Face on 3CR with James, joined by comedian Nikki Spunde. I know you've probably got a lazy streak, but gee, you're prolific. <laughs> really? Yeah, you've always got a show in the works. Every time you come in, there's something going on. There's, um, mm. what have you had? God, you've had, um. No, but it was Asexual Healing last year. It was. Um, and it's Lazy Show this year. So, which... are you lazy? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you've, got, you've got lazy old I'm very lazy. But, like, the, the show actually came out of um, it came out of a joke in Asexual Healing because um, I used to have this idea for a show about being lazy, which I talked about for years and years and never did. And it sort of became this ongoing joke that I had, like, an sh- idea for a show that I was about being lazy, which I never got around to doing. Are you a lazy writer or are you disciplined? Do you like writing kind of manic waves or are you kind of really focused and you get up every morning and you have your coffee and you write? Oh God, that sounds horrible. No, I mostly do improv. <laughs> this is why I do improv, to avoid all the trouble of writing. Right. So um, you don't like write any of your shows at all? Um, no, the stand-up shows I do write. Uh, I do write. Um, they're, even though they're things that I want to write and... Like, they're things I'm passionate about. It's still like pulling teeth, getting myself to actually sit down and do it. So you find just getting onto the stage is the way to go? Ah, yeah. Well, actually, that's the only way I got into doing stand-up at all was a friend just threw me on stage, basically. So when was that? Yeah, I just mentioned to a friend that I was, like, interested in doing stand-up. And he's like, all right, you're on the bill for, like, this afternoon. I'm like, what? Uh, Okay. Um, How did that work? Great. It was good? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it worked really well Um, because I didn't think about it. I didn't, like go into that preparation mode, which is where I'll, um, And it know. must have worked because you're here. If it had failed, you may <laughs> not have continued it. Yeah, eventually. Like, I, I enjoy doing stand-up. I, like, I enjoy, I enjoy being on stage. Um, but, my God, like, the preparation of doing a show for a lazy person is a nightmare. There's so much stuff that you need to do. Is the lazy show stand-up? Um, yeah, it's stand-up storytelling. Right. Type thing. So, um, so it is stories about how the role that laziness has played in my life. Do tell. Um, hmm? Do tell. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I am heroically lazy. Heroically I lazy. I think heroically lazy. Well, I want, like, I think, because any time I tell someone about this show, everyone's like, oh, I can relate to that. I feel lazy. Like, it doesn't matter how productive someone is in their life. Everyone still feels lazy. And that's why I wanted to do the show, because I wanted to interrogate this concept of laziness. Like, how can we be so busy all the time, and yet everyone still feels like they're not productive enough. Interrogate. Yes. Do you interrogate the audience yourself? Like, that's a strong word. That is a strong word. Um, and it 
it's the kind of strong word you use for an aspiration which you're not necessarily going to live up to. Um, but that's... So you set yourself high standards. Oh, yeah. But all comedians do that. There's that risk oh. of failure, isn't there? That's what, that's what a lot of, what's what a lot of um, laziness is, actually, I think, is having a standard which you're chasing after but then realising that the amount of effort to reach that standard is more than you're prepared to go to. Is that the thrill of stand-up? The risk of not meeting that, that, that standard and when you succeed, the incredible adrenaline rush or something that must give you? Um, well, because yeah, cause I think with, with improv and comedy, part of, part of how you make it work is just by just assuming it's going to fail. I know that sounds, that sounds weird, but it's going to be like, well, this isn't going to be what I wanted it to be, but I'm just going to go on and do it and enjoy doing what I've got. Um, and then you get to a space of freedom, like getting yourself free of expectations. There's a real tautology there. There's like that, that pessimism and then that optimism. Yeah. Well, yeah, you've got, to be, you've got to be enjoying failing, I think. Is that, that's the, the, key to, this is the key to comedy. You're never, going to change, you're never going to change the world through doing a, through doing a solo show. So you're just going to enjoy doing the thing that you're doing. Have you ever failed on stage in in your mind? And um, if so, how's that? Feel? Oh yeah, I yeah I have. Like because normally normally I'm having such a blast that everyone else is like sort of at least enjoying watching me. Um, but yeah, I was like last year I was in a um, I was in a sort of variety show. It was an erotic storytelling show. Really? Yeah, and I was for there. an asexual person. Well, yeah, because I was there as a kind of counterpoint to the erotic stories, but the, like. My material was good. I know I've seen that material work well, but like the audience were there for sexy stories. And when I came on with my jokes about sex, they were not in the mood. Really, they wanted sexy stories, and it tanked so hard, and it was awful. And I was catching the tram home, and one of the guys in the audience sat next to me on the tram, and it was the most awkward tram ride ever. Wow. So. Why did it tag? I mean, was it because a part of the audience felt you were sending up their sexual desires? No, it's because um, it's because they didn't believe it. Actually, they didn't believe it. Yeah, they didn't believe it was real. They they thought that I was playing up a character that was then going to have like a sexy undertone to it. Because that's the dilemma that well, that's the that's the that's the struggle that I guess asexual people face that people just don't believe you. Yeah, well, I found that with both of the shows because, like, right. like people, even people who know me well, like family who have seen uh, my Ace show, think that I'm it's exaggerated when it's not. It's very honest, and it's a bit the same with the Lazy Show. People don't believe I'm as lazy as I actually am, um, and it's not as exaggerated as much as people think. So, is that the key to good comedy? Truth? I think so. I think so. I'm I'm a big fan of comedy being a way to explore truths and to find truths which are harder to express when you're being serious. Do you find you've always got another show in the pipeline in your head? Or do you find that you have to perform to get that, to ride that wave to find the next show, to find the next idea? Because you're prolific. I know you're lazy, but you're prolific. (laughs) Um, I do have, yeah, my next show, like after this one, I've got in, in the brain already. Like that's already ticking over. Do tell. Or you're not going to share that, are you? Oh, I'm not going to share it yet. All right. Okay. I'm going to focus on the lazy show. Yeah. What yep. can we expect? Um, you can expect, well, it's well, it's stand-up in inverted commas because I try to avoid standing in it. I've got a luxurious yeah, right. chair, which I lounge on. Um, and you can expect me lounging on stage telling lots of stories, I suppose. So it's, it's stand-up in a banana lounge. 
Oh, it's not a banana. It's a glorious, <laughs> I've got this glorious blue chair. Describe. Was, Go on. Oh, I, it's like when I was putting the, the show together um, last time, I was like, I was panicking the night before because I, like, of course I hadn't finished writing the things. Of course I hadn't. And I'm like, what am I going to do for this show? And it's just like, I don't have a chair. In my head, I've always like been on a couch or a chair or something. I'm going to do this show. It's been doing me about the show for years and years and years. But anyway, so like I needed to, I said like, all right, fine. I'm just going to go and look for one. And if the perfect chair is there, then the show's on. Um, and I went down to the op shop and there was this glorious blue armchair on Crazy Special. And it's like. That's my co-star for the show. Because when I when so I, I hear a blue chair, I envisage ocean calmness. No, oh, it's a very calming chair, and yeah. it's good for a chair to be calm. Yeah, yeah. You don't want your armchair to be like hectically coloured. But um, yeah, so I have a lot of <laughs> so I I land on that. But it's a lot of personal stories, like a lot of gags, obviously, because it's uh, it's comedy. Um, but it is actually a, a personal journey as well, because it's talking about. It's talking about the whole period of time in which I put this show off for, which is covering a big chunk of my life. So it's Why'd also, you put it off? Because I'm lazy. There's got to be more to it than that. Um, but it's also like, because it talks about the other things you put off in life. And yeah, so yeah. It, is, it is by default. It's also a, a show about transition, about gender identity as well, because that was a thing that I also kept sort of avoiding doing for a long time. That I knew I wanted to do from the time I was very young, but... I like that sort of avoiding and avoiding and avoiding. And so it's it's sort of like in the undercurrent is a show about queer identity. Uh, but it's done, it's shaped in a way that it's more relatable to people uh, from a broader spectrum of society. Because gender identity is something that more and more people are able to relate to as more and more people don't put off coming out or transitioning. Mm. Um, I guess it's a, a symptom of the times. Or is there something else at work? Like for you, what was the tipping point where you decide I'm not going to put this off anymore? Oh, um, what's the tipping point? That's a that's a really good question. I think. Well, I mean, I certainly re- remember like the first the first time I actually went out as myself. I was just like, oh, yeah, this is great. Um, it's. You know, it made a lot of baggage drop away. I remember that. Like, it actually, like, the first... Oh, I wasn't expecting to answer this question. Like, the the first... Yeah, the first time was actually was on the internet. And we were just, like, mucking around on the internet. And I had my avatar, which I designed. Um, I had a girly avatar on it. Um, and it was, like, the moment I was first in a social situation, interacting with people as a woman, I was just like, oh, this makes sense. Life makes sense. It never did before. That must have felt great. It was an amazing feeling. And then, of course, it was terribly embarrassing when everyone found out. Um, but it was like, you know, it was, it was glorious like, like that. I think, well, actually, because me doing comedy sort of tied in with, with me making the decision to transition. Because when I did Asexual Healing, that was like my goodbye show. It was like this show that I wanted to do anything I wanted to say about stuff that would be awkward to talk about post-transition. I put in this show. And it's like the fact that I was about to start transitioning both made me write the show because like I wasn't going to be able to do it next year. It's just like, well, I'm not going to talk about this on stage next year. Um, so I had to get the show done. That pushed me to get the the show done as as well. But... Also, like, being sort of more in the public eye like that also moved 
transition along as well because it would come up in interviews about the show and I'd talk about it and, you know, like my image would be up on posters and stuff like that and I'd be like, mm, I don't want a public persona which is gendered incorrectly. Like, I don't want to... And I realised that's part of the reason why I was maybe not so productive in early life. I didn't want to succeed if I was in the wrong identity, mm. if that makes sense. That would be then it's just an obligation. Like, it's just something else tying you to that role. So it was, yeah, it was very important for me to, like, early in my comedy career. And it's interesting because previous guests have spoken about how many people who are, who are trans or who transition become highly successful and high achievers. Uh, it's almost as if uh, the transition process kind of evokes that, that kind of, you know, pendulum shift within almost or something clicks. Well, you've got a lot of wasted time to catch up for because I didn't, I did not do anything. Like pre-transition, like in like, but until I started the journey, and it was a very slow journey for the first few years. But until I started it, I was just faffing around. And I was just like, I was because I wasn't really interested in my life. It's just like it wasn't really my life. So it's like, oh, I don't care what happens. Um, if you know what I mean, like I didn't, I didn't care what happened to that person because it wasn't really me. And then once I transitioned, it's just like, ah, oh, I don't have that many years left. Um, I've wasted most of, I've wasted most of the time. It's like when you get to work at like three o'clock in the afternoon and you're like, I am going to fill these last two hours with some serious work, um, because I've wasted so, and so that's a bit what it's like. So you do start charging around as fast as you can and doing as much as you can because, you know, now you're finally in a position to do so. Nikki Spudze, it's been wonderful chatting with you. Thank you <laughs> Thanks, so much James. for joining me on 3CR. And you can check out Nikki's The Lazy Show at the Imperial Hotel in Burke Street from March 30 to April 22nd. Awesome talking to you as always. <laughs> Thanks, James. Uh, it is 21 after 4. You are on In Your Face on 3CR. And here's Janice Joplin.
Pearl, Janis Joplin, my baby, 25 after 4. You're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. I am joined by Sam Swickle, who is undertaking some groundbreaking research into non-binary gender identity and also people who identify somewhere on the gender spectrum, but not necessarily as male or female. Welcome to 3CR. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, The gender spectrum sounds like a pretty fluid place. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So as far as my research goes, uh, what I'm looking for is um, participants, people that want to be involved uh, for an interview, anyone that identifies outside those rigid categories of man and woman. Um, So you can identify as a little bit of both, you can swing from one to the other, Um, you can um, feel that you have no gender identity at all. Um, So yeah, there's a a lot of... uh, variety in terms of what we call non-binary identities. And it is groundbreaking because most of public policy, for example, comes down to male or female. What are some of the areas where your research can be used? I guess, so basically the process started about a year and a half ago when I um, was thinking of doing PhD research. It's quite an undertaking. So it's between three to four year commitment. And um, I was interested as as a non-binary person who's really struggled um, to to make sense of their their gender when there aren't a lot of words and there's not not a lot of information out there. Um, Yeah, I I started looking into what research there was out there and there wasn't a lot. Um, And that's that's worldwide. That's not just in Australia. Um, Yeah, so I, um, I started doing the PhD just over a year ago. Um, and I've spent the last year looking at the literature. Um, and within Australia, there's maybe been one uh, focused non-binary study so far. Um, there are other studies that include non-binary identities, but there's not a particular focus on those. Um, and certainly, there tends to be a lot of information about basic like demographic information, but really the nitty-gritty, the big juicy stuff of what it is to be non-binary, how it is, that journey that you've been on, to get to that place where you claim a non-binary identity, there's there, there's basically nothing out there. So people's stories are void in the research. Exactly, and it's if we're if we're aiming for greater inclusion and greater understanding of gender diversity, um, the way to do that, I believe, is through stories about having, you know, people telling their stories, um, and and especially because non-binary identities are so diverse the experiences are so different and in even in the interviews that I've been doing I've just started doing interviews the the experiences are so varied um so yeah I think the way to greater understanding um within the LGBTR community and of course the wider community is through stories that people want to identify with um and yeah provide greater understanding because if people are just saying oh I identify as non-binary but there's no story behind that it's really hard for people to wrap their heads around because for a lot of people it is a very new concept um you know people have it in their head that yeah there's men and women and there's there's nothing else so when they encounter just just these words floating around it's really hard for them to to wrap their heads around what it what it means to to be an, of another gender than man or woman. And of course, very easy then when there's that misunderstanding or uncertainty that people have to use it as a political football, like uh, people like Sandra Bernardi have been doing. I guess your research can combat that as well by, by um, telling people's stories. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, 
like particularly with non-binary identities, there's a tendency to regard um, to disregard them as like a recent kind of fad. Um, whereas like with the research that I've been doing, um, you know, you can trace words like genderqueer back 25 years. Um, so they're not something that's just popped up overnight. And certainly people for as, as long as we've been around, um, yeah, people have obviously been having the experiences. They just haven't had the words to articulate what it feels like to be somewhere between the, the man and woman genders. To what extent do you find um, progression in, in digital technology, social media as a great forum for providing the platform for people to tell those stories and, and therefore get that visibility that's needed to combat those stereotypes? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Particularly with like this younger generation that's coming through, they've grown up with the internet and that is a major source of information. Whereas someone like myself, I'm in my early 30s, growing up I had these feelings and I I had nothing to turn to because we didn't really the internet wasn't what it is today, um, and yeah, obviously for uh, as a forum also for for activism and yeah, just general sharing of information. Yeah. yeah so, um, what can people expect if they participate in your in your research? I know you're looking for more people. Yeah, absolutely. So I just put the call out um, a couple of weeks ago, um, and I plan to do uh, interviews for up to the next six months, uh, for the le- next three months at least. Um, so what I'm looking for is people that identify under the non-binary umbrella, um, and that include ge- um, identities like agender, genderqueer, gender fluid, um, but also people that don't um, label themselves as those things, but essentially have a very similar um, experience to being something other than the man and woman exclusively. Um, yeah, so if anyone is interested in being involved, um, they get in contact with me. Um, and I run them through everything to expect. Um, I provide a lot of information and um, we sit down for a one to two hour interview. Um, Most interviews have run around the hour mark. And um, yeah, the focus is on what the journey has been to claim a non-binary identity and what your day-to-day experiences are like as a non-binary person. And like I said before, there there isn't a lot of research out there, um, which means I come into this research basically waiting to see waiting to see what unfolds and and what people um the stories that they have to tell and what are some of the common common themes and experiences that people share um who identifies non-binary so tell us about your own gender identity journey which might be helpful to put some people's minds at ease if they're thinking about talking to you as part of the research yeah absolutely um it's been a really long journey for me so as young as about four years of old of age I actually I recall like some distinct moments of of gender confusion and they've carried with me like through puberty puberty is definitely um, a difficult time for a lot of people who are gender diverse Um, and yeah all through my teenage years and into adulthood and um, I remember having a conversation about 10 years ago with someone and they were like oh maybe you're a trans man and I was like oh I don't feel like a woman, but that's not it either. And I could just have, I've just sat with the feeling and not really known what to make of it, really. Just not feeling like a woman. Mm. Um, and I feel a bit of unease every time I walk into a female bathroom um, or to go to women's clinics or if I were, you know, like I've seen some jobs that would be amazing to do, but they're in women's organisations and I'm like, oh, I've just, I don't feel like I quite fit, like I'd be almost an imposter. So, 
yeah, I've just I've just sat with these feelings and not had the words for them um, to really make sense of it in my head. And it's only really um, very recently in the last couple of years um, being exposed to words like non-binary and genderqueer and and doing a lot of reading that I've yeah come to go okay maybe that's that's me that's that's uh, what makes the most sense for me yeah. Those feelings sound incredibly strong and compelling because I mean the gender conditioning that we all go through is so strong. Yes. If if you you feel uncomfortable in a women's organisation, those feelings must be incredible. Can you describe how they feel? It's. I just I feel like. I don't know, like I don't know what it is like to be someone that's okay with the gender that you're assigned with birth because that's never been my experience. But, yeah, I just feel a constant – I'm just never quite comfortable in my body and I'm not comfortable with the way that people perceive me. And, you know, I get – no matter how I present and I try to present quite mas- – like in a masculine way a lot of the time, like with my hair and my clothing – doesn't matter how much I do, I'm still read as a woman daily and I almost get called a lady on the daily. Oh, can I get you ladies a coffee, for example? So, yeah, it's a, a constant reminder that we live in a very binary, very gendered world and if, if you don't fit into that, it's, it's a very isolating, very lonely place to be in because you don't feel like you're understood for who, who you believe yourself or who you feel yourself to be. It sounds incredibly frustrating being being pushed up against those kind of, you know, barriers daily, yeah, many absolutely. times a day. Yeah, it just, it really, as things are at the moment, there isn't a lot of space for non-binary people. Um, from the everyday task of having to choose a bathroom to, yeah, filling out forms. Um, yeah, it's just, there's not a lot of space for us and it's very, it's frustrating and, yeah, incredibly lonely a lot of the time, I feel. Which, you know, must have a huge impact on people's mental health. Absolutely. So from little research that's out there, um, the same with um, binary trans people as well, higher rates of um, various mental health issues, um, higher rates of harassment and violence um, directed to people because of their gender presentation. Uh, yeah, so definitely a huge issue, yeah. How can people contact you to participate? I know there's a lot of listeners out there who would be fascinated by your research and would like to get involved. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, people can reach out on my mobile number. It's 0423 209 um, or email. So I'll spell it out for you because my surname's a little tricky. It's uh, zwickl, Z-W-I-C-K-L dot S at students dot latrobe dot edu dot au. And people can track you down on Facebook as well. Absolutely. So if you want to track me down on Facebook, uh, you search for Sav, S-A-V, Zwickel, Z-W-I-C-K-L. Sav, thank you so much for joining us on 3CR. It's been awesome chatting to you. Thank you very much.
gonna be a supermodel. Sobulair, supermodel. It is 4.40 on In Your Face on 3CR with James. Well, The Five Provocations is an Australian drama and it's having its world premiere this Sunday as part of the Melbourne Queer Film Festival. On the line, I have its director, Angie Black. Hello, Angie. Welcome to 3CR. Hi, James. Thanks for having me. Look, you use cabaret legends such as Maud Davey to explore The Five Provocations. Tell us about how these are manifest. Well, The Five Provocations were live performance pieces that I had had seen in the Melbourne cabaret scene for years and kind of gone, Wow, these are awesome. How can we see how can we revisit these scenes in in a feature film without just, you know, documenting them? How can we actually create a, a narrative around, you know, characters that interact with these scenes and, and get the same sort of experience as you would in a live theatre setting? So that, that's where the idea sort of came from. Tell us about the movie's plot. I mean, you've got some great gender identity stuff going on. You've got the tradie, for example, who's questioning his gender identity. Yeah, yeah. So there's four characters and those stories were devised, well, sort of in, with, the, with the actor. So they came on board very early in the piece and they didn't know who else was involved or what the film was going to be about. And it was an opportunity for me to work with the actor on a one-to-one and and talk to, you know, what's a character you never get to play as an actor? What do you what do you actually want to develop and, and what do you want to research about people? And so we, we devised these characters together and, and it was really interesting because I suppose, you know, a lot of it comes down to what the actor wanted to bring to the process. But inevitably, you know, sexuality and gender and identity came up and, and was questioned with at least three of the characters. So tell us about these characters. Tell us a little bit about their stories to tempt people to go and see the film. All right. Well, the first character is Marlena. So she is dealing with the loss and grief of losing her, her female lover who has she's kept a secret. So it, this is Rosie, and she was married to one of the other characters in the film. And um, so, so her dilemma is whether or not she's going to come clean about having this affair because she's still got a relationship with the daughter of that family. And and so yeah, you know, so that's her biggest dilemma. Then we meet Bridget, who is the second story and she answers an ad and becomes the housemate in Marlena's house and she's just come out of a closed Christian sect and doesn't really know how to operate in the real world but no one really knows this about her so she's got her own secrets and whether or not she's going to cope in this world. 
That's fascinating because, of course, you've got that conflict that's happening very much in the in the public realm, certainly over the last 12 months with the marriage debate where religion and sexuality collide. Absolutely, and, it, and neither of them come clean to begin with. So it's like, how is this going to manifest? Like, the audience knows who Marlena is because we've met her in the first, you know, 20 minutes of the film, but Bridget doesn't. So she doesn't know what she's moving into. And then, and conversely, Marlena has no idea that Bridget's come from a Christian sect. And, you know, so it's really interesting when they meet. And and what was exciting about that as well was part of the process of developing the film was how I introduced the characters was actually an improvisation. And one of the improvisations we did was because Marlena's got financial problems, she needed a housemate, so we did some house interviews and and there was five people she interviewed for the house and one of which was Bridget, but she didn't know that Bridget was someone I'd been working with. Uh, and then after she did, did all the interviews, we sat down and I said, so which character we, do you think Marlena would live with? And she went, is that, is that really my choice? <laughs> wow. And that must be a great, a great dilemma for an actor to have, to have that choice of character. Like you sound like a very generous director. Oh, yeah, I'd like to think I was. About, I mean, it sounds collaborative, and and I guess my, I mean, the excitement for me about this film was actually getting a chance to really work with actors because as a director, you're just always under the pressure of time. Once a film, you know, I've been financed and it's happening, it's just it's just crazy. Whereas working with actors initially meant that we could actually really sit down and and talk character and and talk about scenes and. And what we actually want to get across with the film, and and that was fantastic and really amazing. And they were incredibly generous because they gave up so much time and passion and energy to develop character, you know, for two years before we even started shooting. So that was that was really amazing. So, Angie, have we entered a new era post-marriage debate and legislation where queerness is seen as a marketable commercial commodity in the Australian film and television industry and that in turn gives you the money to have the time to, to, to work with the actors in the way that you obviously do so well? Wow. Or is it still a real stretch? <laughs> is it still well, really well, hard to get funded? I, look, we, we didn't get it funded. We right. And purposely didn't because I didn't want to make it commercial commercial or viable for somebody else. I wanted to make a film that that spoke to the world I live in as a queer woman. I, you know, I wanted to make a film that I didn't have to be going, oh, hang on, that's right, we can't say that. You know, I wanted, a, I wanted to make a film that had a queer gaze. And I've made films through the funding process, and it's great, and it's amazing, and there's, you know, I'm not saying, you know, that's not a way to go, but with this film... It, we were taking so many creative risks, and we we really wanted to push. We we wanted to push, you know, at, at what you're told you can and can't do. And I guess for us, every time we brought somebody onto the film, if they said, "Oh, you don't make films like this," we went, "Yeah, we know," but you know, we're willing to give this a go. So, know? what was what was the biggest rule that you broke when when making this film? <laughs> uh, starting without a script. No script. No script to begin with. So four actors, no script, no no sense of what the film could be about. So for two years they worked without a script. Um, then writing a script and 
you know, saying to the first AD, if he's going to schedule the film, I want to shoot in chronological order in case, you know, these provocations change the actors and we need to rewrite. That was a big no-no. He just looked at me like I, I had rocks in my head. <laughs> but it makes sense shooting chronologically, doesn't it? I mean, that's how things happen in real life. Absolutely, and that's what we wanted. Once once we knew that the, um, you know, the provocation scenes were selected so that they would move the character and and force them into making change. So I needed to make the script loose enough that they didn't know these things were going to happen. So they were such a surprise to the character that it really did change where they were going to go and what was going to happen to them. I know it's um, not a murder mystery, but it sounds like there's a little bit of Alfred Hitchcock at work there. Oh, I don't know if it's Alfred Hitchcock. I think, you know, there's, it's definitely got secrets and lies. You know, there's, there's moments in the film where neither actor had any idea what the agenda for the other actor was. And you could feel the tension on set, and it was amazing. And I think that's still kept in the film. Like, you really get a sense of, of the tension. And, I, I mean, you know, credit to Kelly uh, Dingle Day, who was the editor on the film. You know, she did such a great job at cutting the film together in a way that we still... It feels like it's a seamless narrative. But, you know, when we were making it, it just wasn't. It was It was so disrupted in those moments that you went... Oh my goodness! Like what? What has just happened here? Um, yeah. So, the five provocations is produced by Black Eye Films. It's an independent production company that promotes the visibility of women in the industry. Tell us about your own journey to get visibility in the film industry, not just as a woman director, but as a as a lesbian director, as a queer uh, director. Uh, well, I, I mean, I I made films at film school and they all you know were very much from a personal perspective so I've, I've always been making queer films and then when I left film school I was very aware that you know you don't get hired as a director straight away so you know went off and, and worked on lots of other projects you know got years of experience of working on films under my belt then got, then got funded for a short film which was called Bowl Me Over and, and going through the funding system was fantastic on that film and it really does open doors, you know, in such a great way that you get fantastic cast on board. We were really, really lucky to get incredible female cast that we could fly down from Sydney because we could afford to. And on the and that film won Best Comedy at St Kilda Film Festival and on the basis of that I got picked up as a ad director. Wow. Which, yeah, yes. That's quite a journey, being being a television commercial director. You, you learn to be very commercial and, and you know, you're selling a product and, you know, you know you're working for people that have a brief and your your agenda is, is not as important. And, you know, that's something that was really interesting to work in that way and, and try and make some change about, you know, hey, we could have a female character here. <laughs> you must be very excited. Your, your, your movie, The Five Provocations, it's showing at ACMA on Sunday, but it's sold out. The world premiere is sold out. How awesome is that? It was pretty, that was pretty great. We, um, we actually sold out in two days of the tickets being on sale. 
and then they moved us into the bigger cinema so we could sell more tickets. But it just it was it's amazing how many people have got behind it, which is great because you know it's it's a very Melbourne film, and it's really great to be able to capture Melbourne. You know, Certainly is on film and 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 get it out there for people to see because you know we don't see that many films you know where we actually see our, our own lives on screen. So that was yeah. We're very excited. Any opportunities for people to see the five provocations on the big screen beyond Sunday? Hopefully. Uh, they should probably just jump online and, and sign up at our um, website because, yeah, we're, we're talking to people and, and hoping that there'll be definitely more opportunities for people to see it. Yeah. Give us a plug for that website so people can go there. Okay, it's www.the5feprovocations.com. Angie Black, best of luck for Sunday, and thank you so much for talking to me on 3CR. Uh, love your work. Thank you, James. That's Take care. Fun. Enjoy okay. it. Cheers. Cheers. Bye. The wonderful Angie Black there, the director of Five Provocations. It is 7 to 5. You are on In Your Face on 3CR, and here's Madonna. Things haven't been the same since you came into my life. You found a way to touch my soul And I'm never, ever, ever gonna let it go Happiness lies in your own hand It took me much too long to understand
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.